Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namuatasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhangdamang Sanghang Namasami So, um, I think what I'd like to do is try weaving the different topics that you mentioned under the umbrella of the relative and the absolute. Let's see what happens. Um, and if I miss bits, then we can sort that out in the discussion afterwards. Um, the Buddha's teachings, one of the reasons why it's so, uh, so many people find it useful is because there's a comprehensive uh, uh, exploration of the world that we're living in and a way of living in right relationship with it. So we started this evening with standing meditation and so the practice of learning how to be in right relationship with the physical body as a way of allowing attention to rest and to anchor is a first foundation of mindfulness. It's uh, very important. And in our contemporary society, when we uh, have so much activity and pressure and detail and stimulus and input, um, many of us have lived beside ourselves, not just as a kind of metaphoric way, but actually our attention is not conjoined with our physical body. And as the result of that, um, we don't have good ways of uh, measuring our own stress levels or responding in a way that feels uh, peaceful and relaxed because we're using concepts rather than uh, somatic sensing to feel out what is an appropriate response in a particular situation. Sometimes our concepts are mixed up with uh, a whole variety of things, unresolved emotional desires or uh, needing to please or peer pressure or all kinds of things. And yet when we have taken the precepts as a core value that we're not wanting to harm, we're wanting to live with the restraint of the five precepts, which includes uh, relationship with what we take, our sexuality, with our speech, and with uh, the kinds of things that we consume that cloud or confuse the mind. Our system, our somatic sense, then begins to get a feeling of what feels right and what doesn't feel right according to those principles of harmlessness. So... Our physical body uh, is a basis for allowing attention to rest. And when we mix that or support that with a a deep-seated aspiration to live with integrity and to keep the precepts, then that will support um, making decisions that move towards harmlessness and away from habits which can be harmful. Now... 
even if the only thing that one did in one's practice was to aspire to live with harmlessness, that is a very far-reaching practice. Because the kind of habits that we have and the kind of beliefs that we hold and the kind of way that our unconscious patterns are operating are not based on harmlessness. They're based on um, other other values. And so if we hold that as a priority, it, it, it questions and, and checks a lot. And so even if we're not engaged in speech with another person, just watching the way our internal thought patterns are operating and the way that we think about ourselves or think about others, there's an enormous amount that can be done just with the aspiration to live with harmlessness. And so it's not an insignificant choice to make and it's not insignificant to affirm precepts regularly and to take note of when there has been a transgression, when one feels that one is outside of what the boundary, according to one's own level of commitment and integrity, allows. And, uh, you know, for myself, the the precepts, like the eight precepts, for example, uh, which is the framework that we use rather than the ten precepts, which is, can be the Thich Nhat Hanh interpretation, is a, a, a practice model that sets the stage for life. So, in addition to the Eightfold Path, for example, one can use the precepts as a way of um, giving one's frameworks for dealing with just about every aspect of one's life. So, for example, we take the first precept, which is the precept not to kill. Now, on a gross level, it means not to kill other living beings, not to kill other human beings. And on a much more subtle level, it it is a precept that can encourage one not to harm anything. And so we move from the external behavior to the internal relationship of living without harming anything. And so, you know, when we sit and we experience things that we don't want and that we want to get rid of, there's a kind of approach that often is violent in the way that we're relating to stuff that we don't want to experience. And yet if we take the first precept as a mirror or a guideline or as an aspiration, then it will require that those kinds of tendencies to 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 respond to something that we don't want with that kind of force has got to be examined and looked at and one has got to find another way because that no longer is satisfactory according to one's value system. And as we begin to get a sense in our own life, in our own practice, in our own sitting, in our own relationship just with ourselves of what it is to live without harming, then that is the seed, that's the foundation for living where we're not harming someone else where we're not harming another person or other beings or we're living in relationship where the relationship is based on respect. The second precept has to do with not taking what is not given or not stealing. And in this contemporary society where fraud and copyright and you know um, things around taxes, and it's actually one of the easier precepts to break. Uh, But if we take that as an internal reflection, it has to do with not asking for something that is not given. Yeah? 
So I live as an alms mendicant, and my alms bowl is a relationship not only about what I eat, but everything that I have is offered to me. And, you know, that's my lifestyle, but my mind can be going in all kinds of, you know, proliferation festivals about wanting to get things or manipulating conditions in order to maximize getting my desires satisfied. And so when one takes the second precept as an internal reflection of looking at what is offered and what is not offered, then in terms of even what we're experiencing in our own minds and hearts and bodies, it's like that's another way of dealing with it. It's like this is what's offered. It might not be what I want, but this is what's being offered. And is there a way to just acknowledge that and to accept it? The third precept has to do with the right relationship with sexuality. And in the Buddhist teachings, there's nothing that I have seen in the Pali Canon that makes any comment about uh, preference about homosexual or heterosexual. What it has to do with is harmlessness with related to sexuality, not orientation with related to sexuality. And so harmlessness with related to sexuality means that one uh, has interactions, sexual interactions with people where there's respect and consent, with people who are able to give consent, who are not in prior committed relationships. But I think as an internal relationship, each of us has quite... um, Well, it's no small task to come to terms with one's own sexuality in a way where it actually feels completely peaceful and rested. It's not something that one's at war with or in kind of either um, um, denying or acting out in a way where one's heart and, and sensitivity and respect are not connected to it. And this is true whether you're celibate or you're not celibate. There's absolutely no escape from this, and going to the monastery is no no recipe for getting out of this. It's in fact my own personal experience is is that it it got a thousand times more intense when I went into the monastery. Not because I was engaged in relationship, but because this energy didn't have the kind of natural outlets that it does when one's a lay person. And so then it just intensifies. And so it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a complete joke if you think you're going to the monastery in order to sort this stuff out <laughs> or get away from it. It's like, good luck. You know, I wish you all the best. So, and learning about our own sexuality, how it moves, how it changes shape, when it arises, where it lands, how it activates our mind and what happens with it. it it, it takes up a lot of energy. And when we're not relating to this energy in a skillful way, the consequences are not helpful. And it's not helpful if you're in relationship, but it's also not helpful if you're celibate. So, you know, there can be illnesses or depression or anxiety or frustration or as a result of not dealing with this energy in a way which is healthy and skillful. And so it's, it asks a, a wholehearted response that is wise and compassionate that doesn't deny it, but doesn't act outside of what the proper boundaries are in terms of appropriate behavior. And every person needs to figure out for him or herself what that is according to the precepts that you've taken. So it'll look different. The behavior will look different depending on the precept standard that you have. 
But when this whole aspect of our life is also connected to our practice, then it's, 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 uh, it's both a wonderful thing as well as a relief. And I know many people come to a monastery or come to a retreat center, and it's almost as if they feel that they leave their sexual energy in their shoes before they enter into the <coughs> meditation hall, and it's like it's not a topic for inquiry investigation. And I encourage... It's otherwise, because this is part of what it is to be a human being, and as long as we have a human body, this is territory that we need to understand and feel at peace with, and when we do, it is worth its weight in gold, and when we don't, there's a lot of suffering, so it's worthwhile. The fourth precept has to do with speech, and... Again, this is one precept that's really difficult to keep. And yet, if we manage to make efforts in this area, it's enormous in terms of the kind of uh, good results. And if we don't manage to keep this precept, it's also enormous in terms of how catastrophic the results can be. So, you know, in a family or in a work situation or a community, nothing can shred a family or a community faster than wrong speech. You know, people... Uh, speaking in ways that dismantles each other's trust or uh, scapegoats or belittles. And and yet the pressures in the society are not around speaking skillfully. You know, in fact, there can be a lot of, of, like a sense of bonding if two people can get together and thrash a third person, you know, and you can feel really close to be able to do that. And yet the after result, the effect of it afterwards is like, ooh, you know, did I really do that? So one needs to take a really careful look at the consequences of what this is and see this, this area is useful to cultivate wholesome and um, developed skills in. And many of us, I mean, I certainly wasn't born with with a, an understanding about what right speech was and how to how to speak in a way that was skillful, not only in terms of getting my needs met, but in terms of what was respectful and kind and not crashing through another person's um, boundaries. You know, so for example, one of the things that I find living having lived in with a community of sisters is is that sisters are phenomenally perceptive. I mean. It astounds me how perceptive sisters can be. But what's taken us decades is to learn how to um, s- to be skillful about our perceptivity in terms of when is it actually useful to share what it is that we see and know and when does it actually require uh, a kind of s- safety for a person to be able to hear what it is that we have to say in a way that is helpful for them. And that takes skill. It doesn't. It hasn't. It's not something that came to us naturally, and it it came as a result of investigating the suffering of not having it. The fifth precept is around sobriety. And when I was teaching the children at the family camp once, I um, I brought in a styrofoam cup and some gasoline, and I poured the gasoline into the styrofoam cup, and the styrofoam dissolved. And it just it just turns to liquid. It's gone. And alcohol or other kinds of narcotic substances or other substances that confuse the mind 
that dissolves one's container and it dissolves one's capacity to keep all of the other precepts. And so it's, it's not that there's something inherently wrong in alcohol, it's just that in order to wake up, it requires every ounce of our capacity um, working together. It's like everything needs to be on board. And when we drink, what happens is it, 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 it diminishes our discernment and it weakens the container that makes it possible to keep all the other precepts. And so it's for, it's for this reason that sobriety is, is, is encouraged. So then one needs to navigate all the kind of pressure situations about drinking and social situations and all the rest of that. About how, what does that look like? And then... And in terms of keeping the precepts, it's not as if they're given as commandments that thou shall not, but as reflections. And each person needs to come into their own understanding of what that means. You know, I've heard people be absolutely hard line where, you know, they make any, any alcohol under any circumstances whatsoever, you're not keeping the precept. And for me, I don't find it useful to deal with hard lines like that. I find it useful to deal with uh, the precepts as a reflection and encourage each person to come into their own um, right relationship with what that means, rather than expecting an authority to dictate what those lines should be and then live in relationship to that authority. So the precepts creates a, um, a ground, and if we look at them as an internal reflection, it's actually a huge kind of teaching on how to live one's life. You know, it's not small at all. And so this all then supports uh, a right relationship with ourselves and right relationship with our community and right relationship with the people that we're living with. Generosity is another topic which is also very strongly encouraged. And the reason why it's so strongly encouraged is because it... There is nothing that gives a person more direct access to their own goodness than living with generosity. And having direct access to one's own goodness is an essential, it's absolutely essential in being able to practice because anybody who spent more than five minutes on the cushion knows that there's stuff that comes up which is not easy. And it's not about battling one's way through it. It's a, it's a way of picking up what's not easeful and learning to soften around resistances and open up to um, material, self-revealing material about ourselves that is conflicting with our identity of who we have taken ourselves to be and allow a sense of ease to emerge around not identifying with the content of what it is that we're experiencing. This is not easy. It's not just a question of sitting still and being able to watch the breath and watch the body. It's about allowing our world to emerge, to be seen for what it is, and to reform itself according to what is actually the prevailing conditions are asking. And as one does that, one's identity goes through... um, shifts and changes. It's not possible to navigate that territory unless we have a sense of access to our own goodness. And so what happens is is that if one isn't able to navigate it, one blocks it. 
And by blocking it, then one disables the insight process to take place. So the whole practice around uh, generosity then supports our ability to practice in a way that is not uh, trivial. It's not at all trivial. So this topic of precepts and generosity and living skillfully and learning the techniques of meditation and understanding the relationship with the body and being able to allow the mind to settle and attention to focus on objects has to do with working with the things that we experience in the world and our relative relationship with them. And it's obviously not small. I mean, I think probably for most of us we could spend our whole lives doing that and we wouldn't come to the end of the learning of it. It's not small. But the challenge is, is, is that as meditators, is, is that if we, if we spend our whole life doing that, then we find ourselves in positions where our minds are out of control or our bodies are out of control or there's some kind of catastrophic loss in the family or the economy goes crazy or you know, the politicians go crazy, and we can't control it. It's not something that we can actually bring into balance. And so sometimes, sometimes, the reason why people find practice such a struggle is because what they're trying to do is to bring things into control which actually cannot be controlled. And so if you're trying to bring things into control which cannot be controlled, then it's pretty inevitable it's going to be frustrating. So one needs to understand also how the mind is able to allow attention to rest in awareness itself rather than identifying with the object. So in this situation, it's like if we look at the room here, there are people and there's carpets and this lovely shrine and these beautiful flowers. I'm speaking, the light is like this, and it's going to change. I'll sit on the chair I'll drink some water, I'll stop talking, you'll talk, we'll get up, we'll change the chairs around. Tomorrow there's going to be a whole thing happening here. This is a business, it's not just a, a shrine room. Yeah. So the, the, the activities, the space, the furniture, the carpet, the light, the sound, it all changes. But the space in this room is not changing. Okay. If the walls were painted different, it's not changing. If there's something exquisitely beautiful in this room, it's not changing. If there's something very foul or terrifying in this room, it's not changing. Most of us, most of our lives, spend our entire lives focused on the objects in the room. Where we're wanting to collect nice objects and we're wanting to get rid of the unpleasant, unfriendly, fearful, frightening, foul things. Yeah, And to some degree, that's part of living skillfully. This is a beautiful space. It's organized in a way that supports both meditation and business. It's comfortable. The temperature's nice. The light's nice. Its tension has been put into creating this space in a way that serves the people who use it. Meditation is about both being able to do that, metaphorically, being able to work with the things that we're experiencing in our hearts and our bodies and our minds and bring them into balance as well as learning how to shift a focus so that we're not identifying with the objects and resting in the space, resting in the awareness itself. Okay? 
Can you see that? Can you see that in this in this context? Are you following? Yeah? So the way that works in our own meditation is, is that you know we have bodies and we have feelings and we have moods and we have motions and sometimes we're bright and sometimes we're low and sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad and sometimes things are going really well and sometimes it's a disaster. And what is different or what we can focus on is the awareness of what is knowing, what is known. So for example, if you're frightened, okay, fear is an object, it's like the carpet, yeah? You can focus on the fear or you can rest your attention in that which knows the fear. What knows the fear is not frightened. What knows confusion is not confused. What knows overwhelm is not overwhelmed. And so in our society today, where we're totally overwhelmed and inundated and overstimulated and have got days that are 18 hours long, you know, it's like it's not a surprise that people have fear or anxiety or frustration or feel out of their, like they don't feel confident all the time. Because it's like it's sort of set up that way. And then we think that overwhelm is not a valid object of meditation because when we go on retreats, our minds become still and concentrated because we don't have so much stimulus, we don't have so many decisions, we don't have so much impact. So we associate concentration with mindfulness. And then when we come off of retreat, we feel frustrated because the conditions are not set up for concentration. And all these things arise. And then there's a feeling of, well, well, I'm not meditating. Or I'm not meditating. If I were meditating properly, I wouldn't be experiencing this. That's the big one. If I were only meditating properly, I would not be experiencing this. So in addition to this thing that we're experiencing which feels uncomfortable, there's also the sense of shame that I'm not meditating properly and fear, well, how can I meditate properly so that I don't experience this? And then you have, on top of something which is unpleasant, you have a submarine sandwich where there's this whole layer of reactivity around it that doesn't support being in a right relationship with the thing itself. Now, part of that has to do with the way meditation is set up and the kind of assumptions that came out of Asia and what we are dealing with now. So in Asia, 2,500 years ago, the population density was what? A lot less than it is now. You know, people didn't spend 18 hours a day working, you know. And they didn't have internet and cars and insurance and... (coughs) You know, and, and the system was set up based on a very tensely um, uh, social fabric where you did not exist as an independent individual person. You were part of an extended fabric of a clan. So in, in that context where people's identity was meshed with their social fabric, it made tremendous sense that in order for people to get a sense of who they were, it was really helpful to emphasize silence, solitude, and um, not being in the family fabric because that's who they took themselves to be. So solitude and solitary practice was an obvious balance to what the society had set up. Well, you transplant that into the West where nobody's got a social fabric which is intact. Everybody comes from kind of overstimulated uh, uh, lifestyles 
And we take this sense of, of solitude and silence as the way of practicing, and we miss the bit which has to do with creating communities and spiritual friendships that support mirroring for each other our own goodness that allows us to do the work. So one of the things that's happened in the monastery is is that we oscillate times of solitude and times of community practice, where the community practice is absolutely as important as the solitary practice, where we're working together and supporting each other and, and, and communicating with each other, developing a network, a friendship, kinship ties of people who know each other and can support each other in what it is that they're going through. This helps supports this kind of the kind of places that we don't have a lot of strength. And then through that, over the years, the people who come into the community can develop the internal resources to be able to move back and forth between times of solitude and then times of community practice. There also seems to be, or at least it has been in my experience, I think the assumption that um, meditation was based on was based on a person who was, in psychological terms, developmentally intact. And, you know, I've lived in a monastery now for the better part of 20 years, and I've never met one person who's come to the monastery who's developmentally intact. Okay? It's like, it's just not happening. Okay? And so the whole premise of meditation was based on a kind of um, psychological developmental level which I don't see present in our society. And so it has been my experience, both in terms of my own personal life as well as in my observation of the community, that what is needed in addition to just meditation, which begins to look at the way in which our sense of self has solidified, is is that it supports building the foundations that haven't been uh, developed sufficiently. And so in this way, what's needed is actually a sophisticated understanding between the difference of what meditation supports and what contemporary Western psychology supports, and being able to move between these two as it's needed. Because some of these developmental weak spots prevents the ability to do profound inquiry because the Ego, in the psychological sense, which is actually required for health, isn't strong enough in order to actually allow inquiry to, to go to certain kinds of depths. So in this kind of a way, we have uh, also a new um, or challenge which is presenting itself in a contemporary society that a couple hundred years ago, it wasn't so obvious. Now, the question about the tradition and the feminine is a beautiful is a beautiful question because, you know, I I did not ordain because I wanted to be part of a community. I didn't ordain because I even wanted to be a Buddhist. I ordained because I saw this whole lifestyle was a way of waking up. That was my aspiration. That was my commitment, and that has been my that's like my bottom line. Okay. Now, what I have seen, and what on the Abayagiri website, it's very interesting to, to um, they've got a really excellent, excellent, brilliant article on the forest tradition, and what they describe is over, since the time of the Buddha, 
the forest tradition has oscillated. Uh, Any time there's a time of, of like a, a really famous teacher, then oftentimes the teacher um, then uh, wealth comes into the monastery. Once there's wealth, there's power, and once there's power, it there it tends to degenerate. And, and, and then the degeneration then gives rise to a new emergence, and the new emergence reinvests itself in the, in the fundamental principles and starts again. And this has been going on for 2,500 years, so that's not a new thing. What has happened is, is that the identity of the tradition has been around biases that don't work in this culture. So... And I don't understand all of the reasons why they're there. I mean, I can, I can guess. But basically, the Thai forest tradition is based around um, the principle that the monks are the ones who have ultimate authority, they get to decide. And if you change that kind of basic premise, something horrendous will happen. Well, I disagree. If nothing that's horrendous is gonna happen. It's just that in this society, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, to have nuns crawling on the floor in front of monks is like it's just not happening. <laughs> and so, you know, I was in a monastery for many years, and the whole concept of well, if you just surrender to the form, if you just surrender to the form, then then all of the enlightened experiences that you need to know will make it so that none of this will be a problem anyway. And I, I gave myself as fully to that as I possibly could until I began to see there's a flaw in the thinking. It's not a flaw in my practice. There's actually a flaw in the thinking. And so in my understanding, the practice is meant to be able to help us come into right relationships with ourselves and with the world. That's my understanding. And that basis of that understanding is is that what's fundamental is liberation. And anything which is suffering is actually an open opportunity for inquiry and an open opportunity for investigation and practice. Okay? What we found was is that what we were working with were certain kinds of limitations around the definition of what the tradition could and could not accept. Okay? And at that point, there wasn't an interest in inquiry. There wasn't an interest in suffering. And there wasn't an interest in discussion. Okay? It was, no, this is the way it's going to be. And either you have to accept it or you're welcome to leave. And for me, that's not congruent with what I came into this for. Okay? It's not congruent with my understanding of what waking up is about. Yeah? So that's why I made the decisions that I did. Because for me, there's absolutely nothing that's um, incongruent with the principles of the Buddhist teachings and waking up and the, and the feminine. Nothing. There's no incongruence. It's just the solidity around the definitions about what the tradition have become is where these things cannot shift from the traditional perspective. Yeah. But... I, whatever, I, I don't think it's an issue. And so I think that, you know, uh, something can emerge where their cultural biases are not the kind of defining feature of, a, of, a, of a, a monastic tradition and have all of the fundamental principles still be intact. And that's what I'm wanting to do. So um, maybe I'll stop here and you guys can decide whether or not I touched all the points.
And if I didn't, uh, we can bring it up for questions now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.